How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? Amen. All right. Uh, God is good. You know, I woke up this morning feeling so thankful and so blessed and so privileged to live the life that I live. There's no greater privilege than serving the Lord. There's no greater privilege than serving the Lord. You know, sometimes people think that they are complimenting me, but they're actually insulting me. They say things like, PB, I feel sorry for you. I wouldn't want to be you. When I see the things you go through, I say, I'm glad I'm not PB. And I don't say it, but I think in my mind, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> no, and I don't mean that as a diss against anyone, because I believe we all have the same privilege. And that's the privilege of serving the Lord. I don't just mean that in the micro sense of being a pastor. I mean, in the macro sense of being a pastor. I mean that in the micro sense that every single day, God has some small way that I can serve him. Every single, it's like that as a husband, you know, I, there's this macro sense that I'm called to lay down my life for my wife. But when she asks for water at 11 p.m., that's a privilege. Yes, amen. That she's not asking some other dude for water at 11. I get to be the one. That she asked, it could have been somebody else, but it's me. I get the privilege of serving this woman. You hear what I'm saying? You know what marked that for me was when I was a little boy, I, was, I think I was in kindergarten or first grade, and I was, I was hanging out with my, my friend, and my, in our, was, uh, my classmate. And his father was working on the campus as a carpenter. And he and I were walking, and we walked over to a room, and he walked in, and his father was building a wall. His father was up on a ladder, had a tool belt on. And as soon as he walked in, he grabbed a tool belt that looked just like his dad's tool belt, and he put it on. And his dad said, son, give me a hammer. And he handed him a hammer. And I wanted a tool belt so bad. But his dad looked at me and said, Benjamin, I'm sorry, but you can't be in here. You have to go out. And I realized that the son got the privilege of serving with daddy. The son got to feel like I'm building this wall, but actually daddy was building the wall. The son just got to build with daddy. And that's what it's like to serve the Lord every day. I get to build with daddy. And you know what? You get to build with daddy. Yeah. Like just some small, some, some, a, lot of, a lot of people are just so afraid God's going to ask for something. Just like a lot of husbands. Oh Lord, what does she want now? Wrong attitude. It's a privilege. Husbands, it's a privilege to serve your wife. All right, I'm going to get to the message before I just start rambling and, and you know, and then we'll be here for, you know, five hours. I'm going to try to get us out of here by like 1230. Is that all right? Yeah. I, I'm in John chapter 8. This has just been burning in my heart all week long. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. We're going to read through verse 11. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? 
This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Father, speak to us today by your word and your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is not only a powerful passage of Scripture, it is a scary passage of Scripture. It's scary in a lot of ways. You actually can't read this passage of Scripture without feeling just a little bit of fear of being exposed. I want to set this up so that we understand what this actually looked like and what this actually felt like. If you could go back 2,000 years ago and stand in this place where Jesus was teaching and, and watch this whole thing go down, what you would have actually seen and what you would have actually felt is probably more intense than what you feel and what you see and what you think when you hear this passage read 2,000 years later. I'm going to set this up for you. Jesus is sitting in the temple and he's teaching, and there's a multitude of people sitting around him. You know, when Jesus would teach, people would sit, and you could hear a pin drop because there were no microphones back then, and Jesus did not shout. It's kind of the same today. Jesus is always speaking, but he won't shout. And if you don't turn down the radio of the cares of this world, you won't hear him. See, a lot of people think that God doesn't talk to them. No, actually, God is talking. You're just not listening because you've got the radio of the cares of this world blasting so loud that you can't hear him talk. He won't shout. When he teaches, he sits and he speaks softly. But in the midst of the teaching that Jesus is giving to this multitude of people that are sitting to listen to his voice, these religious people come in. I, I, want you, I want you to understand that these were the members of the church that came in. That th th this was not a bunch of godless people that came in. These were the religious people, the members of the church. And these were not just the members of the church. These were the high-ranking leaders of the church. These were the religious of the religion. These were folks that had memorized more scripture than anyone in this room, including me. These were folks that had spent more time in prayer than anyone in this room, including me. These were folks who lived at a higher level of righteousness than anyone in this room. These were individuals who had devoted their lives to learning and studying the law of God and obeying it to the letter, to the T. But the one problem with these folks is that they saw their own righteousness 
as that which elevated them above others and gave them a platform from which to judge others. And so they find the perfect situation. Matter of fact, it's possible that they even set up this situation because they actually did not care about adultery. Neither did they care about this woman. They were looking for an opportunity not to accuse a random woman. They were looking for an opportunity to accuse Jesus. The first thing that you must understand is that every accusation of the enemy that comes against you is actually aimed at Jesus, not you. The devil doesn't care about you. He's not trying to make you feel ashamed. He's trying to make Jesus feel ashamed. The devil doesn't care about you. You were created in God's image. The devil coming to destroy your life is actually his attempt to snub his nose at God and to say, ha, look what I did to your creation. Look what I did to your sons and daughters. He's not trying to destroy you for you. He's trying to destroy God. And so they find a man and a woman, probably another religious leader, in an act of adultery, first of all, they drag out the woman and not the man. Last year, I preached a sermon called uh, Holiness and Justice, and I was talking about the relationship between holiness and justice, and I used this passage of Scripture. The injustice was that they did not drag the man and the woman out before Jesus. They only drug the woman out. And Jesus would not participate in this moment of injustice, but I'm coming from a different angle today. I want you to understand this. They probably drug this woman out before Jesus completely naked or barely wearing any clothes because they caught her in the very act and drug her out of the bed, did not give her time to get dressed, and they drug her out into the middle of the court. This was the epitome of shame. This was the epitome of exposure. If you've ever done anything in your life that you were afraid was going to be exposed, imagine what it would be like for that to be exposed and then times it by 100, and that's what this woman experienced. They drag her out and throw her down in front of Jesus, and they made sure to do it publicly in front of thousands of people because they had an idea. We got him this time. There's no way for him to wiggle out of this one. Watch this. We're going to throw this woman down in front of him. We're going to expose the fact that we caught her in the very act of adultery. And notice the terminology, in the very act. We caught this woman in adultery in the very act, meaning there's no wiggle room here. There's no way that this woman can justify herself. There's no excuse for what this woman was doing. We caught her in the very act. Moses said that she should be stoned. What do you say? And here's the trap. If Jesus says, I know Moses said that, but let's not stone her. Then they would go off and say, see, he contradicts Moses. He's a heretic. He's a false prophet. Let's get rid of him. Let's stone him. Let's put him to death. He's a false prophet. He contradicts Moses. He doesn't believe in the the Bible. But if he says, you know what? Moses is right. Let's stone her. Then they're going to run to the Roman authorities and say, he's ordering executions over here because the Jews did not have authority to order executions. So they're going to run to the Romans and say, he's a rebel. He's trying to stir up a rebellion against Caesar. So if he says, stoner, we got him with the Romans. 
And if he says, don't stone her, we got him with the Jews. We got him. Oh, we got him. We don't care what happens to this woman. We just want to stick it to Jesus. So they, they play out their plan. They drag the woman out, interrupt him in the middle of his teaching, throw the woman down, and he stands up for a moment. And they say, teacher, notice they use a title of respect, rabbi. We caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Moses said that she should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus immediately stoops down, disappears from view, and just begins to write in the dirt. And here's what they think when he stoops down and begins to write in the dirt. They think, we got him. It's working. He ain't got nothing to say. He's conceding defeat. We got him. Maybe he's trying to think of something to say. And so they keep pressing him. Come on, what do you say, huh? You're the big teacher, huh? What do you say? You're the one who the multitudes think is the Messiah. What do you say, Messiah? Huh? Come on, aren't you going to say something? But he keeps ignoring them and writing in the dirt. The first thing you must understand is that when the enemy brings accusations against you, even if they're true, God ignores them. Jesus has no time for the accusations of the enemy over your life. But mark my words, that does not mean that you are innocent. It simply means that Satan cannot accuse you. That should be more scary because that means that the righteousness of God can still accuse you. At the end of, the, at the end of, of your life, you're going to stand not before Satan, but before God. You're going to give an account to God, and Satan's not going to be there to accuse you. God will be more than enough. I want you to keep that in your mind. Because the meaning of this sermon is not that no matter what you do or where you go, God is okay with you. He continues to ignore. And finally... He jumps up to his feet and says, watch this. You're right. We should stone her. Everybody pick up your stones. You got a stone? Everybody, make sure you all got a stone. You ready? We about to stone us an adulterer today. And everybody's like, oh, this is about to be good. We're about to go. As soon as we stone this woman, we're turning him into the Romans. Everybody got a stone? And everybody picks up a stone. That stone's not big enough. You better get a bigger stone. Go, find, go get stones. And everybody comes back with stones. And Jesus is like, you ready? We're about to stone this woman. You ready? I'm going to count to three, and then we're all going to stone this woman. Are you ready? You all ready? We're about to stone us an adulterer today. You ready? However, I just need one person who has never committed a sin to throw the first. That's all I need. One person here who has never committed to sin, just throw the first stone and then everybody else will join in. So, I mean, don't worry. If you committed a sin, don't worry. Somebody else will go first. You can go second, third. It doesn't matter. You could all be, all the rest of the sinners can join. I just need one person who's never committed to sin to throw the first stone and then everybody else join in. I'll wait. And then he sits down and keeps doodling in the sand. And suddenly the people in the front start thinking, what is he writing in the dirt? 
And they look over and they start to read what he's writing. And he's writing their sins. <laughs> and the first guy looks over, back in 1974. Oh, Lord, I'm out. And he, <laughs> and the next guy, what? What did you see? What did you see? Back in 1985. Oh, shoot, I'm out. <laughs> and the next guy, what, what are you guys, what are you running from? What are you? Oh, shoot, I'm out. And one by one, they look and they see that he's written their sins in the sand. And it says, being stricken in their conscience. They turn and left from the oldest to the youngest until, watch this, Jesus is left alone and the woman in the midst. The one person who did not leave was actually the person who was qualified to cast the first stone. Isn't it interesting that the one person who was qualified to cast the first stone was the only one who was not interested in casting a stone? The only one who was qualified to judge was the only one who was not interested in judging? Isn't it interesting that the most judgmental people you meet in the world are probably the least qualified to judge anybody? And the more harshly people judge the more sure you can be that they're hiding something. They're trying to get your attention on somebody else so you don't look in my life and find out what I'm actually struggling with. You see, if you've actually come to grips with the fact that you have struggled with some stuff in your life too, the first thing you recognize is I ain't got no right to judge nobody. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And Jesus, it's almost like he tuned everybody out and didn't even, rec didn't even realize, it didn't even dawn on him that people were leaving. Yeah. All of a sudden, he stands up like he was going to stand up and say, oh, and by the way, like he was going to say something else to the crowd. It's like he jumps up and goes, where'd everybody go? And he looks at the woman and he goes, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Where'd they go? Where'd your accusers go? Is there no one to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. They call him teacher. She calls him Lord. <laughs> now she knows him as Lord because he has driven away her accusers. You see, if you want to know what it means to call him Lord, come into his presence and let him drive your accusers away. And all of a sudden, you look at him and say, nobody has the authority to do that but you. You are the Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Notice he doesn't say, I can't condemn you either. No, what he says is, I could. But I don't. Why? Because he already established the purpose of his coming in John 3, 16 and 17 when he was talking to that dude Nicodemus that we yeah. talked about yeah. a couple weeks ago. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in verse 17 he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He's not interested in condemnation. He's interested in salvation. Yeah. You see, a lot of people are afraid to come to church because they think it's about condemnation. Yeah. 
A lot of people are afraid to come to Christ because they think it's about condemnation. A lot of people think that when I come to Christ, that's when I have to stand before the tribunal and hear all of my sins recounted to me. If I go to church, a guy's going to stand at the front and tell me how messed up and how wicked and how evil I am, and I already know that. I bet the woman was scared to death when they were dragging her into the presence of Jesus. Scared to death that they were taking her into the presence of the one who would probably look at her and say, you are wicked and you are filthy and you are cast out and you are condemned and you are rejected. But Jesus had no such intention in his heart. He cared about salvation, not condemnation. It's interesting that the enemy drug her into the presence of the one who redeemed her. See, the devil is so dumb that he doesn't know that when he comes against you, what he's actually doing is driving you into the presence of the one who's going to redeem you and set you free. (laughs) After it was over, she's like, man, thank God for those accusers. I never would have come to Jesus on my own. Thank God for those religious people who drug me into the presence of Jesus. I never would have experienced this forgiveness, this salvation. What this demonstrates is that you can come to Jesus in any condition, in any situation. I don't care what you were engaging in last night, you can come to Jesus this morning. I don't care what you've been doing all week long, you can come to Jesus this morning. And one of the greatest lies of the enemy is stay away from Jesus till you get your life straight. Clean your life up and then come back to Jesus when you're worthy to come to Jesus. And that is the lie of the devil. Because you can't clean your life up. You come to Jesus and he cleans your life up. But you don't try to clean your life up first before coming to Jesus. You come to Jesus just as you are in filthy rags because we all stand at the same place when we come before him. Whether your sin is small or your sin is great, we all stand before him at the same level, unworthy and unfit. But the beautiful thing is regardless of who you are and regardless of where you are, his grace is enough. The reason I love this story is because it's a beautiful picture of what coming to Jesus actually means. Because outside of the presence of Jesus is a multitude of accusers that follow you day and night. Outside of the presence of Jesus is a multitude of accusers. Outside of relationship with Jesus, outside of the presence of Jesus, you find yourself riding what I call the shame cycle. And the shame cycle is when you do the thing that you hate, and then you hate the thing that you do, and then you do the thing that you hate, and then you hate the thing that you do, and then you do the thing that you hate. And then you hate the thing that you do. And then you do the thing that you hate. It's like the shame dance. You know what I'm talking about? And in between doing the thing that you hate and hating the thing that you do is this moment called intention. You do the thing that you hate and then you go, I'm going to do better. And then you hate the thing that you do. And then you think, I'm going to do better. Until you do the thing that you hate. And then you hate the thing that you do. 
And you go, I'm going to do better. And then you do the thing that you hate. And then you hate the thing that you do. And you go, I'm going to do better. But you never do better. Because on your own, you can't do better. Or you might think, no, I can do better. And in some area of your life, you do better. Mm, See, I can clean myself up. I do better. Shoot, I, I, I I stopped taking cocaine. But then you find yourself smoking a lot more weed. You know what I'm talking about? All you did was take your sin and move it from this part of your life to this part of your life. And then you look at this part of your life that you clean and say, see, I can do better. You go home and slap your wife around. Or you stop slapping your wife and you start kicking the dog. You stop kicking the dog, you start yelling at people and cussing out people in traffic when you're driving to work. Your sin needs an outlet. You can't simply hold it on the inside of you and extinguish it. It needs an outlet. It's going to come out somewhere. Somehow, you're going to get yours. (laughs) There were these, I was talking to a friend of mine one time, and he was telling me, he said, yeah, you know, one time my brother came to me, and these were, him and his brother, they were believers, real believers, like strong believers. His brother came, he said, my brother came to me crying one time. And And I was like, what's wrong, bro? And he said, he, he just confessed. He said, bro, I looked at pornography last night. And he was just so broken. And he was like, man, I feel so bad. And he said, I looked at my brother. I said, what? Man, you are heck of fake. You're not a real Christian. You are heck. And he said, I just judged him hard. I mean, real hard. You, man, you are not a real Christian, man. You're a fake Christian, man. You need to get your life right. And he said, that same night, I looked at pornography. <laughs> <laughs> You do the thing that you hate, and then you hate the thing that you do. Because whether you're walking with Jesus or not walking with Jesus, what you discover is that when you find yourself outside of the presence of Jesus, you fall right back into the shame cycle. The only safety from the shame cycle is that you come into the presence of Jesus and you live in the presence of Jesus. See, it's not enough to visit the presence of Jesus. You've got to learn how to come back to the presence of Jesus again and again and again and again. The only safety from the shame cycle is the presence of Jesus. This woman comes into the presence of Jesus, and the first thing he does is drive away her accusers. He's still going to deal with the sin in her life, but he first drives away the accusers. See, the big misconception is that you need the accusers in order to get free from the sin. A lot of times people feel, well, I need to feel guilty because what I've done is wrong. And I've, when you've done something wrong, you need to feel, you need to feel the guilt and you need to face the, you feel, ooh, I feel guilty. Ooh, I feel it. Ooh, I just feel it. And feeling it doesn't redeem you from it. In fact, feeling the guilt and the shame traps you in it. That's why you ride the sin, sin cycle. You ride the sin cycle because the guilt and the shame makes you feel small. And when you feel small, you need something to make you feel better. And the thing that you turn to to make you feel better is the thing that you hate. And you have two choices. One, you can stop hating the thing that you do. 
which means you do what the world would tell you. And what the world would say is, don't be ashamed of it. Just embrace it. This is me. This is who I am. This is my identity. I just do it, and I don't feel ashamed of it anymore, as if redemption is simply to keep doing the thing that you hate, but just stop hating it. Just love yourself. Just embrace yourself. The way out of sin is just just semantics. Stop calling it sin. And call it your identity. Just call it who you are. That's the way out. Just don't be ashamed anymore. And that's not the Jesus way out because he says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you, but stop. (laughs) I've got no judgment. I've got no condemnation for you, but cut it out. Don't let me catch you up in that place no more. You better call Jamal and tell him, you're moved out today. You're out. You're not coming back. Please mail my stuff to the following address. Hmm? You know what I'm talking about? Tell Lucretia, uh, I changed my number. Go and sin no more. And that, 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 that is the scariest part of the story, isn't it? See, I knew it. I knew it. I just want him to forgive me and then end the story there. I just want the story to end with him saying, neither do I condemn you. See you later. (laughs) Because that way I can come back tomorrow and he can go, neither do I condemn you. See you later. (laughs) But he doesn't. He says, neither do I condemn you. Cut it out. But that's scary, because can I really cut it out? I mean, can I just stop? Matter of fact, I wish I would have never even came to Jesus, because now what's been laid on me is a greater burden than I can actually carry. I mean, that's, that's just too much. It's just too hard. I don't think I can do that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this is for me. I don't think I'm ready. But we're missing one important thing. And here's the thing you're missing. That whenever God gives a command, it always sounds impossible. Because it always is impossible. God never gives us a command that we can actually fulfill in our own power. Ever. I mean, what did he tell Moses? Go to Egypt and bring, his, bring Israel out. Go on in there. Go, go to Israel. See that stick? Where's your stick? Show me your stick. That stick? Yeah, that, with, with that, go to, go to Egypt and deliver Israel from Egypt. All you need is that stick. Well, I, I, you want me to deliver Israel from a nation with a stick? Yeah, that's what I want you to do. Just go on in. Go ahead. Joshua, see Jericho? Go take that city. But there's huge walls around it. We don't have no battering rams or nothing. Because, yeah, here's what I want you to just, just walk around it. For seven days. That's, that's all I want. Gideon, I want you to go down there and just destroy that whole army. But they've got like 30,000 people. I've only got like 10,000. I've got like 10,000 people. No, 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 no. Only take 300 of them. Send the rest of them home. You only need 300. 
You want me to destroy an army of 30,000 people with 300 people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I want you to how am I supposed to do that? What I want you to do is get some clay pots, put, you know, put a candle in it. Yeah. Blow a trumpet, break the candle. That's all you got to do. <laughs> God always gives us impossible commands. Matter of fact, if God commands you to do something that you can actually do, it wasn't God. Why? Because he's not interested in what you can do by your own power. He's only interested in what you can do by his power. So he gives you an impossible command so that you will have to depend upon him in order to fulfill it. Think about this. Think about how creation began. It began with God giving a command. Light be. He commands light that doesn't even exist yet to be. Light doesn't even exist to obey that command. The command fulfills itself. When God said, light be, light bead. Light was like, I don't even exist, but I'm about to be. Bam! <laughs> Which means that whenever you hear a command of God, you should not feel burdened. You should feel empowered. When God says, go build me an army, and you ain't got nobody, so, whoo, whoo, I'm about to build an army. Uh. When God says, go build a city, and you ain't even got fired out, whoo, I just received the resources to build a city. Uh. And when God says, be holy, and you're full of wickedness, oh, I just got sanctified. Where are those accusers? You see, it was actually grace that he didn't end the conversation with, neither do I condemn you. Because if he would have ended the conversation with neither do I condemn you, he would have left her in the same condition. He would have changed her situation, but not changed her condition. God is not interested in simply changing your situation. He's interested in changing your condition. Because when he changes your situation, he drives away your accusers from the outside. But when he changes your condition, he drives away the accusers from the inside. Had he not said, go and sin no more, she would have went home with the internal accusers following her. So they didn't stone you today, but you're still a wicked woman. Yeah. They didn't stone you today, but Jesus isn't going to be there tomorrow. They didn't stone you today, but what if they catch you when Jesus isn't around? They didn't stone you today, but you're going to be back in the same boat next week. And maybe you can stay clean for a week or for a month. But when Jesus said, go and sin no more, he released to her the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit that came on the inside of her and actually changed her very nature. And now she walks away not only forgiven, but different. See, a lot of folks are scared to come to Jesus. Because I don't think I can give up what I'm going to have to give up in order to come to Jesus. But what I say to you today by the word of the Lord is that you ain't got to be scared. Because Jesus with him is not only forgiveness, but salvation. 
And salvation is more than the forgiveness of your sins. You see, he he does not condemn you because on the cross, he took all the punishment for your sin. God did not allow your sin to go unpunished. You know why you don't have to be afraid of bearing the punishment for your sin? Because Jesus bore it on the cross. That's what the cross was about. About him just looking at each and every one of us goes, give me your sin, give me your sin, give me your sin, give me your sin. I want all of your sin. He died on the cross not just to forgive you of your past sins, but to forgive you of your present sins. The sins that you were in the process of committing this morning on the way to church. (laughs) And not only of your present sins, but of your future sins. So that when you get there, the grace of God will already be waiting for you there. Paul said, where sin abounds, grace doth all the more abound. It actually says in the Greek, grace has all the more abounded. Meaning that the grace of God goes ahead of your sin and just waits. It's like God sees the pit that you're going to fall into in the future, and he just goes and waits in that pit. He's waiting decades ahead of time. What are you doing in that pit? Oh, it's worried. Benjamin's coming. It's going to be about 12 years, three days, four hours, and 25 minutes. He's just there waiting. The grace of God has already abounded. God has already released all the grace for every sin that you will ever commit for the rest of your life. But not only the death of his cross, but the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. He not only forgives you of your sins and washes you in his blood, but he puts the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. And the Holy Spirit on the inside of you is the great sanctifier. And what sanctification is, is simply the process by which God actually makes you holy. And can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? Let me tell you the truth. If you continue to stumble into sin, God will continue to forgive you. There's enough grace for that. You can come back to him every day. He will forgive you every day for the rest of your life. But do you know what? You know what's even better than that? What's even better than that, and that's good, by the way, but what's even better than that is that God is able to make you holy. He makes you holy by changing your very nature so that all of a sudden, instead of doing the thing that you hate and hating the thing that you do, you start to hate the thing that you did to the extent that you don't do it anymore, and that's called deliverance. And deliverance is when he takes away even the very desire for the thing that you used to do. But he does it by his power, not by your discipline. This woman in this situation did nothing. The battle was not hers. It was the Lord's. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. You can't free yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You can't deliver yourself. And you can't heal yourself. But there's one thing you can do. One thing. And there's only one thing that you need to do. Just one thing. Believe. You can believe. You can make a decision. I'm going to believe on that Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sin. I'm going to believe that he has the power to forgive me and wash me. I'm going to believe that he can make me clean on the inside. I'm going to believe that he bore the punishment for my sin. I'm going to believe that his word is all I need. I'm going to believe that he can drive the accusers away. And you know what? When you believe, he brings you into the presence. Your faith will bring you into the presence of Jesus. And he drives all of your accusers away. He drives them away. When you come into the presence of Jesus, all of a sudden the Lord speaks and says, where are those accusers of yours? Those memories of your past, where are those accusers of yours? That fear of your future, where are those accusers of yours? Is no one left to condemn you? 
you know when you've come into the presence of Jesus because all of your accusers are driven away. There was a man named Charles Finney who was burdened with guilt, had an overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness, something that's rare in our culture because our culture has done a real good job of deadening the conscience by simply trying to convince us to just stop hating the thing that you do. Just embrace it. Do you know what? You can run from it, but you can't hide from it. At a certain point, you're pricked in your conscience, and something says in your waking moment in the night, the way I'm living my life is wrong. You medicate yourself to try to escape that, but you can't. Ultimately, it'll come back. But in Finney's day, the culture wasn't teaching that. And so Finney knew very well that he was a sinner. And he thought that by feeling the guilt and the shame of his sins for long enough, he would be free. But no matter how long he sat in it, there was no freedom in that. And he said to himself one day, he hiked up into a mountain and it was in the middle of the snow, in the middle of winter. And he climbed down under a tree that had fallen over on the road. And he said, Lord, I'm going to sit in this place until you save me. Until something changes in my heart, I'm not moving from this place. He sat there all day long and he felt nothing. The accusers gathered around and just said, nothing's happening to you. You're too wicked. Jesus isn't coming for you. You're too evil. You don't deserve to be saved. You might as well get up and go home because God ain't going to do nothing for you here. And in his own strength, he had to fight those accusers all day. He says, no, 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 no. I believe that Jesus is coming for me today. I'm not moving from this place until I'm saved. But all of a sudden, the atmosphere began to change. And the presence of Jesus came. And when the presence of Jesus came, the first thing that happened for him was all of his accusers were driven away. And this is what he said. I tried to feel guilty, but I couldn't. I tried to feel shame for my past sins, but I couldn't. And I, I, I got scared because I thought I should feel the guilt. I should feel the shame. He said, but no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. And its place was joy. You know you've come to Jesus when your shame is replaced by joy. When he turns your mourning into dancing again, when he turns your sorrow into shouts of joy, when you look for shame but can't find it, when you look for guilt but can't find it, when you look for your accusers, but they're driven away and there's no one left but you and Jesus. Whether you know him today or whether you don't know him, he's calling you into his presence because he wants to drive your accusers away. And I don't want anybody in this room to go home being followed by your accusers. Isn't it? Haven't you lived that way for long enough? Isn't it time you surrender to the shepherd of your soul who is able to drive away your accusers, deliver you from every power of guilt and shame so that you can rise up and say with the Apostle Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Bow your heads with me today. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would settle in upon every heart.
you would settle in upon every soul. And that right now, in this holy moment, in this holy moment, you would silence the voice of every accuser. Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. Take away fear, the fear of loss. Yes, you're going to lose. You're going to lose your accusers. You surrendered your life to Jesus. Yes, you're going to lose some stuff. You're going to lose your accusers. Those accusers have to go. Some of you have been living under such accusation, such shame. It's debilitating. But Jesus says no more. After today, no more. He's come to silence the voice of those accusers of yours. If you're in this place, every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask you, you say, I don't know Jesus, but I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to surrender my life to the one who was able to drive away my accusers. I, I want to be brought into the presence of Jesus today. I need my accusers to be driven away, and I'm ready to surrender my life to him. I'm ready to receive him as my Savior and Lord. I'm speaking right now to those who do not know Jesus, to those who are not walking with Jesus, but you want to make a decision today to begin your journey with Jesus. I, I want to say that this decision is not about making a decision to be perfect or making a decision to do everything right from now on or making a decision never to make a mistake again. or make it, That's not about, I'm not asking you to accept religion. I'm asking you to accept Jesus. I'm asking you to open your heart to Jesus today. And if that's you, you say, I'm ready. I'm ready to take that step. This is just a step. It's just a step. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. You say, I'm ready to take that step. Lift your hand right where you are. I see that hand right there. That's beautiful. That's powerful. Is there anyone else? You say, I'm ready to take that step. I'm ready to take that step. I'm ready. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for this moment. I thank you for this moment. I thank you for this moment. You're in this place right now. Now, there are others of you here today. You've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but you've been doing the, the shame dance. You've been battling stuff in your life, and the accusers have gathered around you. Some of you, even at night, the accusers gather around you at night, and they taunt you to sleep. You're constantly even though you're walking with Jesus, you know him. He's your Lord and he's your Savior. But somehow you've gotten disconnected from his presence and some of the accusers have returned. Maybe not all of them, but some of them have returned. And you say, I need to get these accusers out of my life. I need to reconnect with the presence of Jesus. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you are? Just lift your hand. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Thank you, Lord. Yep. That's good. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, here's what we're going to do. In a moment, the worship team's going to sing a song, but we're going to open up these altars. And every one of you that lifted your hands for either one of those invitations, I want to invite you just to come to this altar.